Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. And I'm Lee Harper, AI human with over a decade doing machine learning AI. With us today is Jake Hirschallen. Jake's built LinkedIn's largest public-private partnerships with governments, workforce development organizations, colleges and universities, and speaks regularly on the future of work and learning. He's been a director on a number of prominent Canadian nonprofit boards and funded Lighthouse Labs, Canada's foremost software development bootcamp, and Hacking Health. Jake's previous career has included intellectual property and international criminal law, teaching global health at McMaster University, and clerking at the Supreme Court of Israel. Jake, it's exciting to have you on today. Thank you for making the time. It's an absolute pleasure. Love the podcast. I was referred by a good friend, Adam Leonard, as I'm sure we'll get into, and really excited to be here. Awesome. So you actually now just mentioned the very connection on how we met. So Adam of Texas Workforce felt very compelled to introduce us. So what was, what was that collaboration he and you had? It was very organic to begin with. I am what in traditional public-private partnerships speak would be considered a vendor. So I work for LinkedIn in terms of building commercial relationships between us and governments, but specifically where those governments use LinkedIn talent solutions not to help themselves, not to hire or train their own employees, which is the majority of our work with governments, but rather to help others. Uh, in the case of Adam, unemployed individuals via the Workforce Commission, the Texas Workforce Commission. And so we started out our, our relationship very much in a sort of more transactional light where I was explaining how he could use our labor market information dashboards, our job matching tools, uh, and how the Texas Workforce Commission as a whole could to do its job more efficiently. And I think very quickly, the two of us realized that we had broader interests, both in the relationship between data and society, and more recently in terms of what data, society, and AI all have to do with each other and what they have to do with our relationship as humans with technology. I, I think there's going to be have to be a very interesting panel discussion we're going to have with Adam and with you going into that whole... what. It's uh, prosperity for all, I think. Is that what, how did I get there? Is that what Adam calls it? Data for prosperity. Data for prosperity, yeah. But it is like the prosperity for all initiative and that the goal is, as Adam sees the workforce commissions is not just jobs, but like prosperity. Are you getting the job you want? Are you getting employed in the things that are good for you, good for your family, good for the community and for businesses as a whole? Um, yeah. Also, so you, you started this kind of, I'm sorry, you were going to say. I thought of a connection, as you said, that <laughs> I hadn't thought of between Adam and I until now. And, and in part, it came from your asking me before this call to provide a bio, because what I was thinking about as I did provide that bio is the transitions from an original career in public international and intellectual property law through one in tech entrepreneurship, and now one into sort of really this public-private partnership space. And I was trying to figure out if I had to synthesize at this stage in my career, the thread that connects all, all three or four. And honestly, it is exactly, I think, how you just defined prosperity uh, through data, but for all, uh, mm -hmm. which is that they, whether it was in uh, international criminal law and trying to sort of buttress the system that prevents future genocides, or whether it was directly with access to medicines and figuring out how to fund medicines for neglected diseases to a greater extent, 
or more recently in terms of the public-private partnerships that Adam and I have been working on. In each point, I've been trying to broaden prosperity for all, so to speak, to create an impact that is greater than like what one individual could, either via, for instance, direct sales or via working at, at one tribunal, but rather to create systems change. And I think that's one of the things that really has connected Adam and I, which is thinking at that systems level about change with the goal of having societal impact first and foremost in our minds and everything else, making money, doing better in our careers, et cetera, coming really secondary to that foremost objective. Yeah, and, it, and that systems level thinking is then how we get a lawyer actually becoming very immersed in the world of data, right? You got it. That's exactly <laughs> it. What's interesting is the longer I work, the more I realize that every one of these very disparate careers has actually benefited the other. The ability to balance economic growth and environmental rights or privacy and economic growth were questions that I was asking when I was at the Supreme Court of Israel and questions that I am engaging with senior government leaders across North America on a regular basis now vis-a-vis things like data and AI. One thing I do want to make really clear, because I don't think we've done so yet, is that I am speaking on my own behalf, not Mm -hmm. on behalf of LinkedIn or Microsoft, LinkedIn's parent company, particularly on subjects such as data, privacy, AI, et cetera. These are my views, not those of my employer, but I will, of course, make reference to LinkedIn's work and, and the work of my past employers over the course of our chat. You are, as we say, your own person, Jake. You got it. <laughs> I think one of the <clears throat> things that your story so far shows and that I bang on about quite a lot because I'm quite involved with a bunch of boot camps and mentoring people is the data space needs a broad range of viewpoints and backgrounds mm. Mm. to come in. It, it is so intrinsically linked with society. Mm-hmm. You've got a whole bunch of techies coming in and defining everything. That's, there's a place for that. But you also then need your people with your liberal arts backgrounds, your law backgrounds. Hey, I was chatting to a guy yesterday whose background, he was a mechanic, a mechanic and then sold guitars for 10 years. Now he's in data and brings his experiences there at the table to give his own set of unique insights and unique spins on this. So it's great to see someone of your stature and doing what you're doing now with such a different entry point into this space. Thank you. I I really appreciate it. I think I'm also really lucky. My father was a diplomat, so I grew up in 16 cities over the course of my life in five or six different countries. And uh, throughout each of those moves, was able to learn other people's perspectives and cultures uh, on on a variety of the things that we're going to talk about today uh, and beyond. But even coming from Canada, one of the the things that I've been writing about a fair bit recently with regard to data and AI is the benefit that we bring to the conversation, the, the added value of being a country that has in some ways figured out governance of the most diverse population on the planet. And that if we can figure out how to govern a population as diverse as ours at a national and you know federal level, how do we then take those learnings and embed them in the governance of things like data and AI in ways that reflect the society that we want to become, as opposed to regularly just building the tech or gathering the data for the tech or the data's sake or economic growth's sake without thinking ahead of time about that sort of diverse society with, as you said, diverse perspectives that they're bringing to the conversation. I know that's a wonderful piece. I wish we would be more open to the dialogue and the comparisons, right? And we talked a little bit when we had Julia Lane, the professor from NYU on, and that she had written this Reimagining the Workforce, and I always get the title wrong, but it's somewhere around there. And one of the amazing conclusions in that 
is that we have this beautiful experiment in the United States where we have 50 different experiments going on. Totally. And how do we have, we know that the agencies do all this collaboration. We know that the people in there do all this collaboration. So now how can we have the legislation actually see that collaboration and benefit from it? And I Completely. think that's, yeah, that's something that I, mean, I know that you're, you have a passion on that particular topic. 100%. It actually brings to mind, I mentioned Canada's federal government, and I use that term federal very carefully there because mm -hmm. it, it creates a lot of problems for us. Now, I once worked on a report that got blocked by our two smallest population-wise province and territory because they didn't think the report was representative, which honestly just pulled value away from the rest of the country for reasons that I didn't think were necessarily fair. So there's a lot of criticism of federalism and the complexity in the U.S. that it creates having 50 different systems where the data doesn't necessarily talk, which is why Julia and Adam's initiatives are necessary in the first place. On the other hand, I think you're right. That diversity of different perspectives on how to govern is actually part of why America has been so successful. And thinking of America as 50 different states, almost in their nation state sense, <laughs> yeah. rather than simply the like states within the United States of America is often helpful because there are ways in which different EU states are actually more unified than U.S. states, right? Like uh, I work a lot in education outcomes and articulation between educational programs in some ways actually works better across different EU countries than it does across U.S. states. And bearing that in mind, I think it's really helpful for us to have a lot more cross-learning than we currently have. I was at a conference on micro-credentials. Uh, speaking of interesting, it was an international micro-credential summit, a European micro-credential summit, and a Catalan micro-credential summit all in one week. <laughs> and the one thing that rang true across all three was that the U.S. and Europe have such different views on micro-credentials. They even define the term so differently that it was hard to talk across those two systems. And so I think to the extent that we can think about U.S. states as analogous to European states or Indian states, it's going to be helpful for us in learning how to create the kinds of systems that Julia is proposing that really tie those states together through data uh, and interoperability. And I've honestly been obsessed in some ways with the idea that we can, if we can get back to that Internet 1.0 idea of open data and interoperability, that tech will function, will serve us far better than in the current world of many walls and inoperable or non-interoperable state systems. And that leads into now like a passion that you, your new passion, and in some ways you and Adam connected on the early seeds of this, right? And so you're speaking a lot and talking a lot about generative AI. What is the lens under which you are investigating and, and speaking right now? It's a great question. I think in some ways it actually goes all the way back to COVID, how during the pandemic, a lot of us saw what was often called an Overton window, a policy window where we thought we could change policy around a variety of things, specifically technology, data, and even to some extent, artificial intelligence. But as everybody moved from in-person interactions to the vast majority of the sort of white collar workforce interacting on Zoom, we began, or at least I began questioning what that was doing to my thinking, to society, whether people were more isolated, even continuing longer term questions about the impact of things like social networks on our mind. And if you continue that thread to the most recent hype in some ways, but I think also positive risk awareness around generative AI and the fact that so many of the top scientists in this relatively new field and large language models and artificial intelligence have been ringing alarm bells about the potential for this too. 
be really detrimental to society uh, and really helpful for society. That that renewed interest in the relationship between us and technology at a really societal level, right? Like almost at an existential level is AI when it becomes artificial general intelligence. It's not, as Adam calls it, augmented human <laughs> intelligence, but rather when the machines really are smarter than us. And I think it is very much an open question whether Gen AI is indicative of us getting there faster, changing sort of the curve, moving more exponentially quickly towards that artificial general intelligence state. That's an open question. I can't, I'm not expert enough to weigh in on it, but I do think the entire conversation has been really positive in waking us back up just as COVID did to a, the question of whether our relationship with technology is healthy to the question of whether giving power in the form of uh, almost like a signing agency to technologies like general, general, uh, sorry, generative AI, not general AI, is is a good thing for us as governments, as individuals. I think those questions are really positive, and and maybe I'll end at least this thread, this diatribe, on the fact that 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 positivity in part comes from the fact that as a, a great thinker out of University College London, Mariano Mazzucato has argued many times, we can start our conversations at what a better future looks like and then work back from there, including our conversations about our relationship with data and AI, and that the generative AI hoopla has in part facilitated that like really positive, deep societal conversation about us and our relationship to tech. Yeah, so maybe this is like the intermission where you can put out the call to your science fiction writers and see yes. who is going to pick up. I mean, yeah, oh, so I if you don't mind, like put, throw, throw that idea out to the universe yeah, right now and well, let's see if anybody yeah. listening, listening will want to take you up on that. Thank you, thank you for bringing that up because this is something we've obviously talked about in the past and that it's an idea I'm obsessed with and I want others to, to not just be obsessed with, but to, as you said, help fill in the blanks, write the stories. Mm -hmm. I was asked a couple of years ago by Jobs for the Future to speak on a panel on what the future of work uh, could look like from a science fiction perspective. And to be blunt, it, it was a pretty depressing panel because if you look at science fiction, most of it depicts dystopian futures, right? If you're looking at Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale or Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, where the term metaverse was coined as this sort of dystopian advertising world reality, virtual reality, or, and, and this is why I learned so much from the panel, each of the other panelists was a non-white dude, right? We were talking about diversity earlier. This is three white dudes talking about tech. There's clearly yeah. an issue with even what's happening today on this podcast. And I think what was great about that panel was it was a bit of the opposite. It was looking at Dubois, the comet, as a reflection of how Blacks have been treated in literature in the past, science fiction, and what and how accurate in some ways, how, how much foresight Dubois had in depicting a world in which a man was almost lynched for having, a black man was almost lynched for having saved a white woman, post-apocalyptic version of New York. I learned from the diversity of perspectives on that panel that there was actually an almost universal, universally dystopian picture of the future being portrayed by sci-fi. And what I was explaining to you in the past I'm excited about is whether we can actually do the opposite. Can we paint a more positive picture? Can we paint a utopian picture of the America we want, the Texas we want, the Canada we want, of society, and then work back from there. Because when you, there's all this sort of rhetoric these days that I think is actually almost scientifically, becoming scientifically backed around the, the breakdown of aspects of society that for a long time have been at the bedrock of, of our well-being, of our health healthiness as a society, such as 
the book Bowling Alone, and it's I'm forgetting the name of his second one, but Robert Putnam has, has written a lot about how the churches and the community centers that really kept us together and no longer serve that function. And I think tech in part is to blame for some of the disintegration of the fabric that really ties us together. And so I think the goal now is how do we reverse that trend by painting a more positive picture? Who wants to write the nice fiction novel that is utopian where we have a society that is really cohesive and meaningful and people spend their lives doing things that allow them to feel satisfied and to feel love and, and, and like they are connected in the ways that they want to be, not necessarily exclusively by Zoom, but rather perhaps in reality with technology facilitating those human real connections. That's, and the, I, quick, sorry, go ahead. That's the story that I'm, I'm looking for someone to write. And I so, don't know why I didn't think about this the first time you and I talked on this particular idea, but it now is ringing around in my head on the, a, t a TED talk wherein uh, this lady painted a wonderful picture about what we should be looking forward to with all the different technologies that data science and artificial intelligence are going to produce for us. And just similarly to, and I don't know if she did this or if on my own head it did it, but equating like the whole industrial revolution, the move away from a gregarian society. And so now services mm -hmm. and product oriented and very information oriented. So new things were created and you know, new, whole new industries and whole new ways that people engaged. And so similar here, it's like now the beautiful picture she painted was moving towards out of information and services into value-based. So if people are able to, we don't have to worry about washing dishes or picking up the trash or anything like that. Now I might actually, there might be societal benefit to be paid to properly raise your children or take care of the elderly or do these other things and engage in more personal and meaningful human interactions on that. And so I thought, and I think it was only a 10 minute talk, but it was wonderful to hear, oh, this is, I love this. This is this totally. is a very interesting way to look forward to what we could be doing. So what's more positive and fulfilling a way? I completely agree. There was a, a post, I, I reposted a speech that Paul LeBlanc, actually was an article based on a speech that he gave at ASUGSB this past year, an article in Inside Higher Ed that I reposted this in the past week or so, because Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University, which has really grown to be the first or second largest university in America because of its online presence, because of its use of technology. And he was talking about how, while tech, sorry, while education right now is really caught up in how to prevent cheating using ChatGPT or how to uh, change its operational or pedagogical guidelines based on the use of generative AI, what it really should be thinking about in the medium to long-term rather than these sort of short-term paralysis around cheating is what the changes to our labor market are going to look like as a result of Gen AI, much in the way that you were describing changes as a result of the industrial or even before that agrarian revolutions. And what he's suggesting is that, or what he's hoping is that we can focus more on the care economy, mm -hmm. that like the roles that we are going to need much more of are human beings interacting with human beings, whether those are social workers or nurses, whether mm -hmm. those are um, giving us the time and space to maybe be paid to take care of our parents or our children or grandparents, rather than the current model where those jobs tend to be devalued in favor of those where you're doing something more technical, where you're not necessarily having a human interact with a human, which interestingly tend to get paid more these days. And the question is, can we begin to intentionally shift some of that dynamic? And I think that is a great question for education administrators like Paul to be thinking about. Something that, as you're saying all these things in 
and also a couple of other threads and prior points in this conversation is popping into mind. So when we talk about what has technology potentially had and in creating these adverse effects in our relationships. And as I was going through that, it's like thinking about, wow, we're so busy these days. And I live in a neighborhood full of kids and I've got three kids and we're just, and everybody, and this isn't, I don't know if this is a construct of like social media and, and the increased global competitiveness, but everybody feels very compelled to have their kids hyper-scheduled. Numbers of activities and everything. And so the, no longer is it the days where people would just play on the streets because you didn't have five activities after school. Everybody has five to seven activities after school. So is that, did we have social media to drive that? Did we have the, the world as flat concepts, all this global competitiveness? And so if, irrespective of what the driving force is there, how might we look at changing the information construct so that people feel less pressure, that we can get to less pressure because we're talking about prosperity and workforce. Yeah. How do we get 100%. to that picture? How do you recreate that time and space for kids to simply imagine and daydream and yes. play in the world as opposed to having to always play on a room that has been scheduled or sit at a piano with a course book in front of them? Because I think you're right. Not only are we stressing ourselves out as parents, but the kids themselves don't have time to think expansively, think creatively, play in the sort of more traditional sense of the term. Yeah. that If we keep going the way we're going, even like that wonderful teenager listening to this idea, not that we have teenagers listening to this podcast because it'd be very yeah, boring, yeah. but you never know, right? There might be that, that those couple out there. It's like, oh, I want to take Jake up on that, writing that book, but then do they have the time? But how do we create the time for the next dreams of authors? Yeah. And how might we do that through the workforce development? And then how might we do that through data feeding? I was at an amazing conference in Paris <laughs> two weeks ago uh, that UNESCO put on. Honestly, really surprised me because UNESCO has this, to be blunt, reputation of being a pretty boring academic part of the UN, which of course in and of itself is not necessarily renowned for fast moving action or impact. <laughs> and, and yet in this conference, there was two things that really shook me. One was this focus on whether we can create a system of education that allows for exactly what, what you just said, mm -hmm. space for play, where, where there is less of an imposition, not just because of sort of academic rigor and, and our history of, for instance, in East Asia in particular, there's a huge amount of pressure on kids to excel academically to such an extent that in some cases they have almost no free time, right? Not, not only are their days fully packed with school, but their evenings are as well. And the, 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 a lot of the input on how education should not simply be productive from an academic standpoint, but also create happy, fulfilled, meaning-seeking, and play-engaging people, that a lot of that input and energy is actually coming from East Asian countries, where there is a pushback against that really traditional emphasis on education. So that was one piece. The second piece was a, a book that was launched at the conference called something like the tragedy of EdTech. And it was written in 500 pages, classic, massive UNESCO World Bank kind of report, but it was written in the form of a Greek tragedy. And it was mm. described the role of EdTech during COVID and how in so many cases, technology exacerbated inequalities, made, made education itself worse for a lot of the people participating in it and in fact alienated uh, a, a large number of people from education because it was done so poorly online. And that a lot of the savior complex of 
the ed tech community and suggesting that we were going to come in and keep education going or even improve it via online. As someone who's been pushing online learning for a long time, it was, I think, really hard hitting to hear that in many cases, we might have been better with more deaths and schools open in the opinion of the authors of this report mm-hmm. than shutting them down, living kids online and having and setting back, you know, a, a small a generation of students in one way or another. Yeah, it's also, and Lee knows that I end up with like parental references a lot because that's my life, right? But the interesting thing, it's I have coffee with a couple of the dads, we're buddies, we're all our kids are in scouts together. And so we just catch up. And one of the things that we were noticing, we were comparing notes across like not only our kids, but our kids' friends. It's like, kids seem a lot less social these days mm-hmm. and because of the, this relationship with technology. And then interestingly enough, and I, in the Atlantic or something, one, one of the article came out and it wasn't just us feeling this and noticing this. It's generally all these kids are so connected and we don't, our, you know, can say now our 14 year old does not have a phone. We're not getting them one anytime soon. Oh, yeah. And so the, but all these kids are so connected, so hyper-connected that they actually want to be able to be at home and to decompress. And it's like kids aren't coming over. People aren't relating as much. But then the question is like, but is that a real connection, right? If you are texting, if you are doing this throughout the school, you are literally around people, right? Yes. Like I heard me. at one point somebody joked that was like the inspiration for The Walking Dead was like just looking at people, just droves and droves wow. of people walking down the street on their phone and nobody wow. looking up and looking around. That's scary. But yeah, so I am back to that kind of that thing, that call earlier. I am all for like the utopian picture wherein we cast like how might we use data and technology to inspire real purpose, real interactions, real connections. Totally. How do you get back to podcasts as opposed and phone calls as opposed to Zoom calls and video? Because those allow us to, at least with several of our senses, be able to interact with the rest of the world while we're engaging in something that we deem to be productive, which of course we have to do for X percent of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how even can we take it one step further and perhaps sometime go for a walk in nature without any audio in our ears or yeah. screens in front of us with that in and of itself allowing for the daydreaming, that sort of space to, to be properly human and to interact with each other in the ways that we need to. There was a, a really cool device I came across last weekend that some new parents that I hadn't seen in a while had for their three or four-year-old, which just allows you to put in paper cards and then plays audio off those cards. So you can play audio books or whatever, but there's zero screen. There's just two knobs that a three-year-old can figure out. <laughs> nice. and, and they allow the three-year-old to listen to things that I think in many cases, parents are relying on an iPad to show in video form and mm-hmm. then therefore perhaps facilitating the addiction to blue screens that so many of us suffer from. Well, also people have separation anxiety when they're away from their phones now mm-hmm. because of the because because of this like constant connection and the way that certain tech firms are very good at tapping into people's oxytocin levels mm-hmm. and other things in the brain. Yeah, my so wife. That's a hard thing too. Lee, Lee, my wife had this I think fantastic idea that she's not the only one to have it, but we've been thinking about writing an article on it for some time now about how we in some ways need uh, uh, a federal commission to protect us from those apps or those companies that have the ability to shape our minds at a certain scale or to a certain degree, right? Anytime you can affect over a million people's minds with the click of a button and either create stress reactions or other reactions, there should be some degree of regulation because that kind of power 
was never, I don't think humans were ever designed to, to understand or be able to leverage that kind of power in a safe manner. And our governments were certainly not created, our law, our legal systems were certainly not designed in a situation where one person could have that kind of influence, which I think is why political systems are being damaged to the extent that they already have been by a variety of types of social media. It's why I've been particularly proud that LinkedIn, as an example, has not accepted political ads since the Cambridge Analytical time, and even I think a few years before, because we realized that we were having or could have a negative impact on elections and wanted to ensure that our platform didn't do that. That's a nice segue to that interests me around tying back into the AI conversation and now you've mentioned regulation in government. The field is moving insanely fast right now from where we were back in November when ChatGPT was released up to where we are only just 10 months later and we've got entire new tech ecosystems existing. These models are already way better than they were back 10 months ago. It's yeah. accelerating faster and faster. VC money is piling in. You know, mm-hmm. It's the hot area to be in right now. Yeah. And we know that governments already move slowly, which is a challenge for which there's, there's, a good, there's good points to that intentionality rather than just knee-jerking and outlawing a whole bunch of things with no regard for the consequences of that. Sure. But also it's, very, it's hard for me to keep up and it's my, it's my job to keep up with this. Yeah. And it's hard to keep up with everything that's going on. Right. And, and of course, then you've got the global side. Canada or the US or the EU regulates this. Will China, will India, will other nations, will Russia. Yeah. So it's almost like this. On one hand, I think people want regulation or some kind of protections. On the other hand, people don't want to be the ones that will lose out and, be- and get behind in this new space. Yeah. How do you see from your very broad, expansive viewpoint all of that? tying together or can it really even tie together very well? Great question. Uh, again, I want to <laughs> reaffirm that I'm not speaking on behalf of LinkedIn and Microsoft because <laughs> they have takes on regulation, which of course relate to their understandable interests and influence in the space. But from just purely Jake's perspective, not my employers, it's a wonderful question that I've been thinking a ton about. And I'm really happy that there is so much interest in writing about it and excitement about it, particularly amongst political leaders, because I think that's in part what's been missing. That's even what was missing during COVID. Folks were understandably freaked out about the health consequences, pouring their attention there and took their eyes away from the impacts of tech on society in a way that at least now the really, a lot of leaders are seized with the issue of AI and its impact on society. So it's good that folks are thinking about it. I think the current proposal that is perhaps the most supported to create a global regime of of sort of coherent regulation is something like an IPCC, the International Commission that's focused on climate change right now, that that they're looking at an equivalent for AI. And the cool thing about some of the proposals here is that I think they allow for the nimbleness and the expansiveness necessary for an international organization to regulate something as general, as broadly applicable as AI. And one of the conclusions, and this is one that I should credit Adam with in part as well, is this idea that she who controls the data controls the AI. So a lot of what we're talking about here to your podcast point is actually data regulation, not AI regulation. And that's everything from data privacy regulation, because the AI, of course, relies on uh, a lot of our individual data to, to learn and to have its influence, but also to things like data cleaning and questions of the labor involved in a lot of data cleaning right now, predominantly happening in the developing world, the impacts of 
going through that data cleaning on the minds of the folks that are having to do it. Even the fact that a lot of the data going into some of these Gen AI platforms is itself manipulated or could have come from another Gen AI platform and therefore isn't as robust as it. Oh yeah, the d- dilution of data is becoming a really interesting and very quickly deteriorating Precisely. issue. Precisely. Um, and also interesting from the technical perspective, we didn't really know what would happen if that happened. And now it's, oh, it's really not good. Okay. okay. Yeah, and that's why it, we shouldn't have these black boxes operating at the scale that they're currently operating in my humble opinion. If we are going to let something influence minds to the extent that social media has and Gen AI likely is, we should understand how it's making the decision, so to speak, or producing the content that it is producing. And, and so that's, I think in part why there is this huge rush to to regulate. Now, the reason this IPCC idea I think is carrying is, is moving faster than many others around global regulation is in part because it allows one to include a bunch of different risks associated with AI and benefits that are coming from AI, and then match those two solutions that will either provide the possibility of monitoring or even to some extent regulating those risks and the possibility of accelerating or providing energy resources to the solutions that are beneficial, whether they're in healthcare or other aspects of sort of intellectual and and economic growth. And so it's that flexibleness that I think is really positive here. The opposite extreme, if that is very much in the realm of ideas and and risk to solution regulation, is the focus on compute. There's also, so if the IPCC is one massive idea that a lot of folks are agreeing on, another area of general consensus is the private sector at this point has perhaps too much of a monopoly on the compute power necessary for AI. And here's where I really get in trouble with my employers. So again, my view, not LinkedIn, it's not like trust. But, <laughs> but we are, of- seeing, but we are seeing sovereign funds. I believe some of the Middle Eastern states have started at like a sovereign level, buying up tons of the most modern yeah. H100 Sorry. GPUs in NVIDIA. So we are Good. starting to see certain public sectors getting into certain this. countries getting into this. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I think my argument would be, whether it's the public or private sector, you sort of pushing compute, into or, or accelerating AI via the the acquisition and the building of huge amounts of computing power, often backed by NVIDIA chips, among others, that that process can be done in a way that is either open, like Internet 1.0, where that compute is openly accessible to every player and where the models that are built on it are both evaluated for their risks and accelerated where they're seen as having a positive social impact, but in a manner that is open and then again, accessible to all. I don't think the, the Middle Eastern funds, the Emirates funds that are getting into those compute resources are necessarily thinking about things from that open perspective. Although I must say, I haven't followed it that closely. You tell me, Lee. Yeah, it's hard I, to separate those particular things from the businesses owned by the, by the yeah. entities they're in. But I, I am oh, sorry, Lee, go for it. So is what one final time interesting question like on this topic that I've been thinking about a lot um, and I know a lot of folks are thinking about as well is from the idea of social AI there's a lot of goodness to these things being right maybe yeah. not formally open source because it has a specific meaning and set of constraints that most models can't because often the data can't be fully open source for privacy reasons even if the models themselves can be but there's a, a thought that people are thinking about should these must have models be fully open or, or be fully open because 
you can do a lot of good with them and a bad with them. If we yeah. compare these things, say, to splitting the atom or a similar kind of thing, that can be used for incredible uses, lots of inexpensive energy that's not necessarily as poll differently polluting, but perhaps even control pollution-wise than some fossil fuels are, for example. Yeah. So similarly, you give that to anybody, and they can put bombs with it too, and that can be very bad. So similarly yeah. with these models, we can do great things, or we can, with voices, to then create spam calls, and they sort of think that their child's been kicked out when they really haven't been. So what's your view on what open could mean for an AI system or what open perhaps should mean? Should it be fully open or is there some kind of balance? To I think it should be as close to fully open as possible. And I think the balance is the same balance that we have struck in terms of tech regulation for much of history, but where we're not necessarily making the right analogies to the way that we regulated Internet 1.0 and Gen AI. And, and what I mean by that is when we regulated Internet 1.0, we said, you can put any information you want on Wikipedia unless it's going to be used to directly harm another person. And you can yell fire if you're not in a movie theater, but if you are in a movie theater because it could result in people getting trampled when there isn't a fire, you're not allowed to do that. And, and that's a relatively straightforward balance that's been built into legal systems for, for time immemorial where our rights are balanced by the rights of other people, right? You should have as much freedom to do whatever you want. This is an American, really fundamental American concept, but really a global democratic one as well. And, and that your freedom to do whatever you want is only limited by its impact on the rights of other people. I think the same thing is true for Gen AI. We should try and keep it as open as possible where the uses are for in the public interest. And, and specifically the concept of CERN, like the Collider in Europe, which was interestingly built as a shared resource globally with early development of the internet in part resulting from the attempts to share those innovations openly and globally, that like you could see a similar CERN for AI built on this sort of shared open source, but you're right, not necessarily using the original definition of that term, but open source compute facility that you can then build public interest Gen AI on that like that massive, probably multi-hundred million dollar initiative, if it is structured and regulated in the right way, could provide a positive counter to some of the more closed ecosystems that big tech has built as of yet. And I think that's, to me, seems like some of the power potentially with that IPCC approach. Like I, I would be a big fan of more monitoring, more data, and therefore thinking going into what might we set up as the rules so that everybody can play fair and more people can benefit. Because we have seen this over and over as on so much the logical fallacies abound in lawmaking right i heard this one thing and therefore that is a massive problem Absolutely. and then i am now going to regulate upon the edge cases and in that regardless of which side or spectrum wherever you are in the cube that makes up your political ideas everybody tends to lose in that and as you just pointed out Regulation is, is not a term I think meant to use almost mm -hmm. ever in this conversation. Right. Rather, as you said, the IPCC would be monitoring. The term for AI would be compute facilities. And in both cases, they would be as transparent as possible in order to facilitate this sort of public interest use of AI for humanity, so to speak. I know these are really broad terms, but what they are not, as you said, is specific regulations prohibiting activities, or as Italy almost laughably did, banning ChatGPT. Yeah. Rather, 
the idea is figure out the better balance of open and closed and public and private around technology and of tech and economic growth versus societal and human benefits that are not just technological advancement. And then once you have figured out those admittedly very complex balances, but which like court systems have forever been designed to weigh and, and to some extent, legislatures and other aspects of government were created to balance that we go back to those institutions and allow them to properly balance these different rights and responsibilities without, as you said, the knee-jerk regulatory reactions. And I think what's interesting is through the messy um, workings of different governments, whether it's sort of U.S., the federal or state level or all around the world, you're actually seeing some of what you're describing bubble up. The U.S. idea that each individual agency should be responsible for how it regulates AI, but under these sort of broad frameworks put out by the um, federal administration, by the executive, that in some ways represents, I think, the balance that we're talking about right now. No hard rules, but rather guidelines that then agencies themselves can apply, hopefully, in, in a balanced and effective manner. And what's interesting is, I think, going to be to see how those play out relative to European ones, because the internet is one internet, whether you're in Europe or America, maybe yeah. not because of firewalls, but certainly our internet is the same internet up here in Canada as it is down there in the US and over in Europe. And so if the Europeans are coming up with a much more centralized approach as they have with the Digital Media Act and Digital Services Act and GDPR before them versus the sort of American approach of, of letting agencies figure this out on their own, you're going to end up with the same internet regulated in two very different ways that I think will be easy to compare and will not necessarily be conducive to each other comparable or mutually feasible. Yeah. So like, it'll be a good comparison that's going to play out in the next couple of years if things continue on their current course. On a related, but maybe slightly tangential question here, and this is coming from the liberal arts guy here, right? And the, the question around truth, right? And so I think mm. we can look at generative AI, and I have seen both read about and seen people interpret, pick ChatGPT, any of them, what these things produce as a version of truth. Do you see, uh, and I was actually even wrote down, as, oh, it's information versus truth. And I actually, yes. I don't even think it actually qualifies as information. Mm. It's generated content. Text. It's generated yeah. content versus truth. So as we are all, yeah, the practitioners, the folks in, in governments, learning more about the power of these systems, and actually learning to ascribe content versus truths and to what they can do. Are yep. you hopeful at all for what this could actually mean as, as you see um, politics skewed very greatly by content wow. versus truth? Fantastic um, question. Before diving maybe into that last piece, which is perhaps the most controversial one, right? What is, <laughs> how does it affect politics? I think your broader question is still really powerful and important, mm -hmm. which it, I, I would actually use information, data, and content as in this context, more or less interchangeable, mm -hmm. right? None of those things have a truth judgment applied to them. That's yep. a definition. Whereas once you add the word truth or trust, there is a degree of subjectivity. There's like a human part as opposed to what just a machine can read or yeah. produce. And that's why perhaps like describing AI generated content or gen AI content as truthful versus not is perhaps not the right way to even evaluate it right. in the sense that it is just data and content, like all other data and content, 
you then have to put the layer of, is this content truthful based on a human consent, based on a human perspective on it. And I think the great thing there is it reinforces the necessity of a human in the loop at almost every stage of the content generation, evaluation, resharing, use for a given purpose, et cetera. You need humans to evaluate the truthfulness, the truthiness of a piece of content, of information, of data. And it, it makes me think of my favorite site on the internet. The, I think the favorite thing that has ever been produced since the internet was created vis-a-vis truth, which is Wikipedia. And I think that its governance has been remarkable in allowing us to come to a consensus that our, I think folks say is stronger than any encyclopedia in history, any other encyclopedia ever has been in that all of the checks and balances built into the thousands of people who are constantly updating any given article mean that while not, while any given article is not necessarily truth as a whole, that encyclopedia Wikipedia represents a greater degree of truth than almost any other source of content on the internet. And that you can contrast that with a huge percentage of the Gen AI content that has been created based on other parts of the internet, which in some cases were intentionally misleading, right? Mm-hmm. Gen AI, because it has just simply been, in most cases, the LLMs have been trained on the internet, not just on relatively trusted content like Wikipedia's content. It is reproducing intentional mistruths and all sorts of content that was not created with trust or truth in mind unintentionally. One of my collaborators at Penn, he, one of his expressions is when you ask an LLM machine on the internet, your response is the statistical average of the internet. That's what you're getting back, right? Totally. And do you want- The good, the bad, the outliers, it's all there, all chugged in, gives you a nice generic average. When was the last time that's what we caught, right? If you're in a classroom, I remember in high school having incredible English teachers teach me Martin Luther King and Gandhi's writing and George Orwell and Hemingway's writing because it was the best of its class, not the average content. (laughs) And it it seems like if we continue down this path of relying on things like Gen AI for an increasing percentage of all of the content on the internet or that we consume or relate to, that you're right, we're bringing ourselves as a society, as a globe, down to that medium as opposed to up to something that we should be aspiring to, which is almost necessarily human created and perhaps in technologically augmented, but I think needs more humans in the loop. It's almost like the uh, 1984's reverse dictionary. It's like we've now, it's not just words. It's like we've abstracted and removed 787 new thoughts this year. So don't worry about those. That was last year. Totally. And I think 1984 is a great example. Obviously Orwell was brilliant in many ways, but folks like uh, Yuval Harari writing for the Economist most recently debating with some of the founders of DeepMind and some of the other key LLMs, the potential dangers of Gen AI has been reinforcing over and over again that if you pump into these engines all of the ideologies and religion and most persuasive literature and writing that humans have ever created, and then ask those same engines a question, you are inevitably going to be influenced by those ideologies and religions, et cetera. There's a study that a few colleagues up here at a think tank, actually two think tanks, have proposed uh, a number of times and, and we're looking in essence for a government to help us fund. But the study is supposed to be on 
government budgets. One of sort of the easiest ways to understand a given government's activities over the course of the year is to look at its annual budget, see what they spent, who they funded, et cetera. And up here in Canada, we really struggled with our, our history of genocide of indigenous peoples, particularly recently, as we've discovered, for instance, tons of mass graves from children killed in residential schools or around residential schools. And that brought to mind the question of if we were to ask all of these budgets, if they were all, you took all of the federal and provincial Canadian budgets, pumped them into a Gen AI machine and then said, and then you were able to ask it questions about what worked and what didn't work throughout our history. If you said, how should we educate Indigenous peoples in Canada? The answer might be still to this day, residential schools, because it doesn't have the context that those schools were absolutely devastating to the population in question. It just has a hundred years of history of funding residential school. And I'm making up the numbers, but yep. the point simply being layering that context, that understanding to your earlier question of what is truth and what is not, but what is good and what is bad on top of this, ensuring that human values or ethical perspectives, not just the automatic, this is the median average of the internet or of all of these policies is so important that I think funding projects like that will allow us to begin to explore what's gone wrong by relying too much on tech, on um, technologically generated content, and how we can correct for that moving forward. Yeah, the example you just gave, Lee and I were just talking with somebody else in the data industry who's going to be on a future podcast, but from the Eckerson Group. And we were mentioning that there's probably a worthwhile analogy between AI and as I, I love to draw it. Plato's allegory of the cave, right? Like it has no understanding. It doesn't live and exist. Putting aside, do we live in base reality, right? So if we just, hey, we live in base reality, then these things don't live in base reality. It is shadows right. on the wall and it does not understand the general consequences. And so to your points, how might anything ever observe, right? It, and, and at some point, it probably will. At some point, we might build something that can be in and see consequence and actually experience consequence, but we're nowhere even close to that. And knowing, and I just, and as I was telling Kevin, it's like I bring that story up with people just to give them the idea of the limits, that they understand wow. that these things are limited. And so if you understand, put into context the limits and back to the truth question, this might be useful for giving you information, but it's not going to be useful for giving you truths. Because totally. everything else around has to be taken into context. Totally. And more than ever before, but this is probably something that's been true of technology, technology for time eternal. We give it agency. We act as if it has its own power to make these decisions mm -hmm. in a way that hurts us. Talking about Uber as disruptive and then letting the technology change how our traffic systems work or how our taxi systems work or how we get around or order food. Those are decisions that in the past, I think we actively made as a society when we decided to give taxis medallions, as an example. Mm -hmm. And in this case, we acted in some ways as if the tech had run away and done this change, disrupted our transportation systems all on its own. When in reality, it was people running companies that were actively trying to create those changes. And I think whether it's OpenAI or Wikipedia, there is an obligation on us to evaluate the extent to which the contributions of tech companies or of government are positive for society, as opposed to just assuming that the tech is going to keep growing and getting faster and bigger and 
we don't really have any agency or control over it. Yeah, I think there's there's probably an interesting future panel session as well. It's like how do we create measures of value, you know, versus sure. just pure productivity. So right. back to it's you know if as somebody who loves a very good balance between freedoms and then ensuring the freedoms of others, like we love to be able to have people create, but how can we do creation also that is generally beneficial to the many people once we kind of take a broader stakeholder thing. And so, for example, like to the Uber idea, the argument has been a while that it takes more cars off the road. San Francisco Metropolitan Transit Authority was a customer of ours at one point, and they had the data that said, no, it didn't. Yeah. So it's, we end up with, and it doesn't mean that Uber is a bad idea. And Uber, they're absolutely a wonderful thing. As I've said many times, like I would actually have paid a premium for that service over a taxi. Why didn't totally. they just charge a premium for it? So, so, but the, so how do we, how might we, as we go forward, and this is maybe just an open thought first versus something to answer today, but yeah. thinking about creating measures of value. And I think that IPCC idea, when we get more monitoring, both on what private sector is doing, but also what government's doing too, so that we can collaborate towards what is the, what are the right things to measure? What are the right ways to look at that data and, and allowing I, many different inputs and ideas into it? I mean, we're getting really macro here, but I, I, part of what I, you said pointed me to the relationship between neoliberalism or market-based mechanisms and tech, mm -hmm. because it's, it's really like Uber being the example of the intersection of those two being the sort of quote unquote problem rather than just the tech or just the market-based mechanism. Mm -hmm. And that there, there has been an assumption, certainly accentuated in the past 30, 40 years, that if you just let the market do its thing, you'll end up with the optimal outcome. And I think you will end up with the optimal market outcome, i.e. you will end up with the solution where those make the most money. But that makes the most money or grows the economy the fastest. But I think, or the tech will accelerate the fastest if you translate from market to tech terms. But that in both cases, that is not, as we said, necessarily adding value to individuals or humanity. And, and I am excited that you're right. I think for the first time, maybe in human history, we have both the resources and are becoming thoughtful enough to view things from that value-based perspective. Awesome. Jake, what are you working on today? I know we talked about, but there's so many ideas expanded upon in this last bit, but what, it would, what should people follow you on your current so, passions and topics today? I appreciate uh, the question. I'm going to spend one second and put my day job hat back on. So now I'm going to speak on top of LinkedIn and Microsoft. And I think the great thing about that is it's what brought us together in the first place, which mm -hmm. is to say the collaboration with Adam Letter and the Texas Workforce Commission and the collaboration between LinkedIn and governments across North America on helping unemployed folks get jobs has really been at the core of my work for the past eight years. And I think what I'm most proud of is being able to use public-private partnerships as a means to counteract the almost inherent inequality that comes as a result of selling software as a service at scale, where the more you buy and the less it costs. And the way that we have engineered, among many others, to counteract that, interestingly, market mechanism interacting with technology is by working with governments so that they purchase access to LinkedIn's talent solutions, our recruiting, online learning, and labor market information at scale to help those who wouldn't otherwise be able to help themselves or pay for our products or use our products. And so I'm really excited about some of the systems transformation across higher education systems, which learned to learn online and hopefully in a hybrid manner, because I think what is one of the key lessons of COVID and of online learning more generally is that everyone is on a spectrum 
where each of us falls with a different ratio of how much online versus in-person education is optimal. But similarly, in the workforce system, bringing some of the leading practices of recruiting firms, of search and staffing firms to workforce boards, which have been massively under-resourced, but the employment service functions within a given state helping unemployed people get jobs should have access to the same technology that LinkedIn is providing or selling to the most effective recruiting companies, hiring managers of big companies all around the world. And I think the Texas Workforce Commission is a fantastic example. Among others up here in Ontario, our uh, province is also contracted province-wide with uh, LinkedIn for employment services support. And in fact, we have a relationship with the National Association of State Workforce Agencies to do the same. But to return to that Texas example, they are basically using LinkedIn to get unemployed people into jobs more efficiently than they were without our software. And that kind of public-private partnership for me is amongst the most rewarding work that, that we can do. And so the call out would be, if you are a government in North America looking for a way to help either unemployed folks or other disadvantaged populations, it could be small to medium-sized businesses, it could be newcomers looking to be settled, then reach out because I am keen to find a way have LinkedIn support your government in those efforts. And maybe yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. That's really my, my days out these days. Awesome. And then I hope someday we can help Adam and TWC think through, it's like back to that value versus productivity, because easy productivity might, metric might be, oh, we landed 7,000 jobs last month. Yeah, yes. But would that pay the bills jobs or was that prosperity? Now, are, are those jobs people are happier or are those jobs where people simply make more money? So we have to try to think through who could be a good panel group for the measures of value and productivity versus productivity. And let's, let's self-create that utopian world. Like, or at least throw the ideas out there and we'll let some very creative people pick up and write the stories. Can't wait. Awesome. Can't wait. Thanks Thank so much for having, thanks for being on today. My pleasure. Great speaking with you, Bill. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host Lee Harper on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.